Henry was a hammer, a 28-ounce American steel hammer made in the Estwing factory of Rockford, Illinois. Ever since leaving the factory, Henry was a free thinker and a big dreamer. He planned to transcend the stereotypes of ordinary hammers and do bigger and better things. Nothing was going to stop Henry from achieving his dreams, especially one dream, dentistry. That's right, folks. Henry the Hammer wanted to be a dentist. He wanted to give everybody a Hollywood smile. So, as unconventional as it may sound, Henry the Hammer did become a dentist and loved it more than being a hammer. People with teeth actually came. Henry was happy to help, and as he did, he knocked their teeth out, literally. Customers ran out of Henry's office moaning and bleeding and clutching their mouths. Henry loved it. He loved it. He was living his dream. But deep down, something just didn't feel right to Henry. But he loved the idea of being a dentist more than anything, so he ignored his doubts and lived free of ordinary hammerness. Well, one day, Henry's old neighbor, Arthur the Axe, entered his office and told Henry, Henry, you're a hammer, a carefully crafted one. You were created to build things, not to fix people's teeth. Why don't you quit dentistry and do what you were made to do? Come help me build things. I could use some help on building my new log, log house. Henry was furious. He wouldn't hear it. Get out, he said. You see, Henry's obsession with being a dentist overshadowed the fact that Henry was a hammer made to drive nails and build things. Well, eventually, Henry closed his dental practice. You know, how do you recover from so many better business bureau complaints? <laughs> Henry was humiliated. But he did actually come to admit to himself that he ever, never actually gave anyone a Hollywood smile. All he ever did was knock people's teeth out. Well, Henry was miserable. One day, Arthur the Axe shouted over the fence, Hey, Henry, uh, why don't you come help me build my log house? Humbled and hesitant, Henry thought to himself, Okay, I've got nothing better to do. That day, Henry hammered a nail for the first time. And immediately, Henry was different. Something felt right and good. Henry, Henry bent some nails. Sure, sure. But it felt as if he was created to build. Building that log house with his neighbor, Arthur the Axe, changed Henry's life. It liberated him. Henry was truly free, free to do what he was created to do. Folks, True freedom isn't being and doing whatever you want. True freedom is being and doing whatever God wants. Christ did not set us free to pursue whatever desires we have of our flesh, but rather whatever pleases our Father. God created us to glorify and to enjoy him forever, which God's law and gospel explain how to do, and Christ set us free to do just that. So here's the big point, which also serves as an outline. Christ has set us free from the law to live free 
by standing firm in Christ, anticipating the hope of righteousness, and loving others by faith. People in America, they love freedom. But what is true freedom? America is confused about that. Let's begin here. Christ has set us free from the law. Paul tells the Galatians in verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Notice that it is Christ and not the law who liberates. From what had Christ set the Galatians free? And the verb that Paul uses to set free from slavery. It has to do with slavery. So slavery to what? The law. Christ has set them free from slavery to the law. Paul had just told them, so brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman, because Christ had set them free from the law and its curse. Back in Galatians 3, Paul talked about Christ redeeming them from the curse of the law. See, Christ, Christ set them free from the curse, the penalty, the condemnation of the law, and the law's demand of perfect righteousness to be accepted and loved by God. Romans 6 talks about slaves of sin and having been set free from sin and becoming slaves of righteousness. Christ has set God's children free from the law's curse, from sin, from condemnation, and from death. We are also set free from the power of the law of sin and death. True freedom, then, is actually becoming slaves of righteousness. Slaves of righteousness. In Romans 6.22, Paul told the church in Rome, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Christ set sinners free from enslavement to the law of sin and death and simultaneously makes them slaves of God to do what pleases God. In Romans 8, 1 through 4, Paul makes it even clearer. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. I'll read that again. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Christ set us free from the law to walk not according to our flesh, but according to the Spirit, the Spirit. And there is a temptation here. It is not uncommon for, for churchgoers to hear, for freedom Christ has set us free, and to misunderstand it as, I'm free to do whatever I please. Now, Paul wrote Galatians, we need to be clear on this, to refute legalism, which says, I am justified or saved by faith and works, not just faith. 
Legalism is expressed in this simple equation. You might want to write these equations down. They're very simple. Legalism says justification equals faith plus works. That's what Paul is arguing against. Justification equals faith plus works. However, though works do not contribute to justification, works do inevitably follow justification. So if works of the law don't follow justification, there is no true justification. A a truly justified person obeys God's law. This biblical truth can be expressed in a simple equation as well. It goes like this. Faith equals justification plus works. So faith alone justifies and thus produces works. The the gospel says that law-keeping is part of the Christian life of response to grace. Well, like the churches of Galatia, churches struggle today with legalism. But there is another crisis in many churches today called antinomianism. Antinomianism simply means against the lawism. Against the lawism. Antinomianism loves, I mean, rejoices in the statement, for freedom, Christ has set us free. But it interprets freedom as. I am under grace and no longer obligated to obey God's law at all. Antinomianism misunderstands grace, freedom, the law, the gospel, and the Christian life. Antinomianism can be expressed in this simple equation. Faith equals justification minus works. See, antinomians believe in justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but to their own peril, they do not believe that they are obligated to obey God's moral law, and so they do whatever they want while waving the banner of God's grace. Professor Ryan Reeves says it like this, antinomianism then is convictionless Christianity. It sees repentance as a single event not to be repeated. Walk the aisle and then just wait for heaven. Sermons are no longer to expose our sins, allowing us to admit our faults and confess them freely. The Christian life is more about ignoring sin and resting on a foggy concept of grace. End of quote. Folks, antinomianism plagues the American church today. Paul was not necessarily refuting antinomianism in Galatians, okay? But I mention it because of how easily Galatians 5 verse 1 can be misunderstood and misapplied. Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. To to be truly free is not to be free of obligation to obey God, but to be free to obey God. Because true freedom is living to glorify and enjoy God doing whatever pleases our Father. That's true freedom. So let's go a step farther. Christ has set us free from the law to live free. Christ has set us free from the law to live free. Again, Paul says in verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. For freedom from sin, not freedom to sin, which is slavery. 
Beloved church, Christ died on the cross and suffered God's just wrath for you to liberate you from sin and its curse so that you could live free and make progress in holiness. Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty we are free at last to glorify and enjoy our God by doing what pleases Him. Paul mentioned the yoke of slavery in verse 1. Well, folks, there is another yoke to bear, but it is a yoke of freedom. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. To be free is not to be yokeless. To be free is to bear the yoke of Christ. The Galatians shouldn't have submitted again to the yoke of slavery, but they should have submitted to the yoke of Christ. Believers must submit to Christ in absolutely everything and therein live free to follow him in everything by the Spirit. Think of it like this. Before Christ set us free, uh, our relationship with, with the law was like, I have to, but I can't, so I'm a slave. But after Christ set us free, it was like, but Christ did, I'm now free in him, so now I get to, and by the Spirit, I can. Big difference. Christ set us free, and now we relate to God's law differently than what we did before being set free. We relate to the law as free men and women to obey it and to cherish it. Saints, true freedom is not doing whatever pleases your flesh, but rather doing whatever pleases your Father. Legalism sees law-keeping as the means of freedom. Antinomianism sees law-keeping as irrelevant because of freedom. But the gospel sees law-keeping as the glad and grateful response of freedom. Legalism and antinomianism, they're both slavery. They're both slavery because they both get the law wrong and they both get the gospel wrong. 1 Peter 2.16 says, live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as slaves of God. So, so that's really worth thinking about, living as slaves of God Christ set us free to be adopted children of God and at the same time slaves of God. And until you understand how those two realities work together, you will not understand true freedom. You'll miss it. So now let's bring this, let's bring this down to earth. Okay, let's, let's play some of this out in our lives. Legalism says I'm justified, forgiven, and free because I'm not sleeping around. Antinomianism says, because I'm justified, forgiven, and free, I can sleep with whomever I want, whenever I want. Legalism says, I'm justified, forgiven, and free because I go to church. Antinomianism says, because I'm justified, forgiven, and free, I don't really need to go to church. Legalism says, I'm justified, forgiven, and free because I've never had an abortion. I don't swear. I don't drink and do drugs. 
and I am a moral person. Antinomianism says, because I'm justified, forgiven, and free, I can get an abortion, swear like a sailor, get drunk and do drugs, and be an immoral person. Here's what the gospel says. I'm justified, forgiven, and free because of the merits of Christ alone, received by grace alone, through faith alone. Therefore, because I am justified, forgiven, and free, I am free from sexual sin and free to express my sexuality in a way that pleases God. I'm free from self-righteousness and free to go to church to worship God and to be fed and shepherded by him. I'm free from the sin of murder, free from the sin of vulgarity and blasphemy, free from the sin of addictions, free from the sin of sanctimoniousness, and free to bring that child into the world, free to use my mouth to praise God and encourage others, free to enjoy food and drink to the glory of God, and free to live a moral life by the Spirit to showcase God's grace in my life. Friends, I'm encouraging you to hear justification by faith alone with thankfulness that motivates you to holiness. Hear the statement, for freedom Christ has set us free in a way that encourages you to thankful and joyful obedience to God's law. Truth is, the doctrine of justification by faith alone promotes righteousness and purity and holiness and love and growth and obedience to God out of thankfulness and and out of delight and out of duty. Justification is the foundation of sanctification. Okay, well, as God's free kids, how do we live free? We live free by standing firm in Christ. We live free by standing firm in Christ. Paul says, for freedom Christ has set us free, stand firm therefore. The word therefore is really important. Uh, The Galatians were called to stand firm precisely because Christ had set them free. Their freedom was the reason and the power to stand firm. True freedom protects true believers from returning to slavery to the law. It guards them. It protects them. In his writing, Paul often first establishes what is true, and then he gives commands in light of what is true. He, he did that in Galatians. He gives the law and the gospel, and then he tells the Galatians what it is that they're to do in light of the law and gospel. Now, did, how many of you played uh, uh, the uh, King of the Mountain game as a kid? King of the Mountain. Man, some girl, some tough girls, I see that hand. The goal is to get to the top of that dirt mound and to hold your ground. And the kids rush up at you and you send them right back down. Eat kids. Eat dirt. I mean, not eat kids. Eat kids. Kids, eat yourselves. I meant to say dirt. Eat dirt. Because it's like I'm the king. No one's taking me off this hill. So that's a picture of standing firm, steadfast, immovable, unyielding, determined. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, stand firm in the faith. In Philippians 1, 27, Paul referenced standing firm in one spirit. 
In 1 Thessalonians 3, 8, Paul referenced standing fast in the Lord. So I think to stand firm is to stand strong and fixed and immovable on the mountain of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think to stand firm is to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to persevere in dependence on Christ alone as your immovable righteousness and salvation. I think to stand firm is to not fall off of the mountain of the gospel into the valleys of legalism or antinomianism. To to stand firm is to stand tall and to stand proud with Christ at the top of the gospel mountain with Christ holding you fast making you strong, and you stay there with him never to fall off the mountain into the valley of the law. The Galatians were not to be subject again to the big and heavy, hard and burdensome slavery of the law. They were free. Think of that big, heavy wooden beam laid across two oxen or two horses. The yoke was a crossbar of Hard labor, joining two beasts in order to harness their power to pull the plow or the cart. The Galatians were free in Christ, never again to return to pull the burden of the law for righteousness. Pull, you have to do it. Harder, harder. Why aren't you moving the sled? Come on, what's wrong with you? Move, move, move. And you're just not going anywhere. How burdensome it is to have the law laid upon your shoulders and to have to pull with all of your might towards heaven and not being able to budge the plow. It's a burden. You just get buried beneath that weight. I can't do it. I'm not good enough. And that yoke is slavery. And that yoke is too heavy for us to bear. Christ bore that yoke for you so that you could be free to bear his yoke. Now, verses 2 and 3, they tell us what the problem was in Galatia. Now, as an apostle chosen by and commissioned by Jesus Christ himself, Paul mentions the core issue which provoked his very detailed defense of justification by faith alone in Galatians. Has he not made this point? If you don't get get Galatians or get justification by faith alone, you haven't listened to anything Paul has said. He's beat this point home. Here's why. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. The Judaizers added circumcision, or you could say law-keeping more broadly, to the gospel. They were saying that the Gentiles needed to be circumcised to be saved and to be part of God's covenant people, the church. Justification equals faith plus circumcision, or justification equals faith plus works. That's not the gospel. If you read Acts 15, you'll see that the question of whether uh, someone needs to be circumcised in order to be saved, that, that you'll see that it was already answered. This has been put to rest by the council of Jerusalem. The answer was a loud and clear, no, no, no. Here the Judaizers were. What the Judaizers had done, which was wounding the church so much, they abandoned orthodox Christian theology. 
They made another way. This had already been settled in the church. Okay, so think for a moment back to uh, Abraham. Abraham believed God, and God counted his faith, uh, faith as righteousness, or you could say counted it as justification. Only after Abraham believed did he receive the sign and seal of circumcision. Circumcision was given to Abraham not to justify him, but as a reminder of God's gracious covenant and promise of Christ who was his justification. Circumcision was never meant to justify. It only ever signified and sealed the promise of Christ, the gospel, the the covenant of grace. And as odd as it may sound, circumcision was a gracious and good reminder that God would fulfill his promise and send the promised serpent-slaying seed. It was a great thing. We shouldn't forget then that God commanded circumcision. It was mandatory in the Old Covenant. You don't argue with God on this. You get it done. Remember that in the Old Covenant, uncircumcised men of Israel were cut off from Israel and counted as condemned covenant breakers. To receive circumcision represented a refusal of God's promise of Christ, which would equate to unbelief. So it's understandable why the Judaizers in Galatia were so amped up about circumcision. Here's where they went wrong. Circumcision foreshadowed Christ being cut off from God in order to bring justification. Circumcision was a painful and bloody reminder and ritual that foreshadowed the painful, bloody death and atonement of Jesus Christ. Circumcision was then fulfilled when Christ died on the cross, and therefore it was abolished as the sign and seal of the gospel. It no longer signifies and seals what it once did. So baptism replaced circumcision as the sign and seal of the gospel as Galatians 3, verse 27 alludes to by mentioning baptism to the Galatians. So, the Gentile Galatians already bore the sign and seal of the gospel in their baptism. We could say they already were circumcised in their baptism. Physical circumcision was then totally unnecessary. Don't need to do it. Calvin said, quote, I reply, the divine appointment of circumcision was only for a time. After the coming of Christ, it ceased to be a divine institution because baptism had succeeded in its room, end of quote. But you see, the Judaizers went even further. They asserted that circumcision not only continued to be the mark of covenant membership, but also said that it worked alongside of faith to justify They assign saving power to circumcision that circumcision never in the history of circumcision ever had. Circumcision has always been powerless to save. Christ alone justifies through faith alone, not circumcision for Abraham, for Isaac, for Jacob, for Israel, and for the new covenant community of faith. Please listen very carefully. The issue wasn't so much the ritual of circumcision itself. The issue was accepting circumcision as the means of justification or a complement with faith for justification. That was the problem. 
if the Galatians accepted circumcision as a complement to faith for justification, understand what that meant. Christ meant nothing to them. No advantage, no profit, no benefit. You lose Christ. In other words, accept circumcision or law-keeping as the means of justification, and you lose Christ and all of his gospel blessings. You lose the whole thing. See, if the gospel, if it's really Christ alone, if it's really in Christ alone, then to add good works or law-keeping to justification is to cut Jesus' work, his life, death, and resurrection in half. And as Calvin said, whoever wishes to have the half of Christ loses the whole. Do you understand how serious this issue was in Galatia? A half Christ is no Christ. A half Savior is no Savior. Add anything to Jesus and you lose Jesus and everything gained by him. Everything good obtained by him for you. You lose it all. To accept circumcision as means of justification is to bind yourself to all of the law, to obligate yourself to do all that the law demands in order to be saved. So so to accept circumcision would be to tell the Father and the Son and the Spirit, I can do this on my own and I don't need your help. This is why Paul says so sharply in verse 4, You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Folks, that's a haunting verse. Haunting. Paul is likely using the word severed as a provocative connection to circumcision. Do you see that? If you think that God accepts and loves you because you are good and you are moral and do the law fairly well, fairly well enough, then you are severed, you are cut off, you are circumcised from Christ. You are not under grace, you are under the law and therefore condemned and enslaved. If you march to the beat of legalism or antinomianism, then you do not know Christ. You are not a child of God, and you are not an heir. You are a slave, severed from the freedom and blessings of Christ. That's what Paul is saying. Fallen away from grace. Anybody having some questions about that little phrase there? Fallen away from grace? Let me just tell you, it does not mean you lose your salvation. Okay? Too many verses of Scripture that we don't have time to look at totally refute that idea. Here, see if you track with this, falling away from grace means rejecting the gospel of grace. Uh, Turning away from the gospel which promises God's grace. To turn to the law is to fall away from the very thing that promises grace, the proclamation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. To trust the law again is not to lose your salvation, but rather to fall away from that which gives salvation, and in doing so, you prove that you never had salvation. Does that make sense? I hope it does. Next, we live free by anticipating the hope of righteousness. Verse 5, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness How would the Galatians eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness? Through the Spirit. 
Do you understand? To live free is to be empowered by the Spirit. They would also eagerly wait by faith. To live free is to walk by faith. Put it together. The Holy Spirit works in and through faith to produce an eager expectation of righteousness. The the Galatians were able to look forward to righteousness with hope and expectation because the Spirit was working in and through their faith. So how do God's children know that they will be fully and finally made righteous, obtain righteousness? How do they know? Because the Holy Spirit works in them to obtain righteousness by faith alone in Christ alone. It's the Spirit's work. Brothers and sisters, this is amazing. God has declared you and me righteous in his sight, in Christ. But at the return of Christ, the process of sanctification will be complete, and you and I will be made righteous. We will actually be righteous like Christ. And this depends on the Holy Spirit working in us as we trust Christ until that day. The process, and we will gain it in the end, our sanctification leads to our final righteousness. Calvin rightly said, righteousness, therefore, depends on faith and is obtained through the Spirit without ceremonies. We are counted righteous now. And we will be made righteous then. And it will be so only as the Holy Spirit works in us through faith. To live free is to walk by the Spirit in complete trust, in complete confidence, and in complete hope that righteousness is actually ours in Christ. Lastly, we live free by loving others by faith. You know, in our society and culture today, using the word love is very risky because love has been put in a blender and chewed up beyond all recognition. You just don't know what it means today. What do people mean by that, by love? Few people actually know what true love is because they try to understand love apart from Scripture and apart from union and faith in Christ. You can't make sense of love then. If love is not infused with true faith in Christ, it is not true love. So, when I say loving others by faith, I am connecting true love and true faith. Love is not love unless it is motivated and performed by faith in Christ. Paul said in verse 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So let me just ask this, if you are in Christ and united to him by faith, what on earth does it matter if you're circumcised or uncircumcised? It doesn't matter. Not at all. Doesn't count for anything. Do it fine, don't do it fine, doesn't matter when it comes to being in Christ. When you're in Christ, it doesn't matter if you're circumcised or uncircumcised or as he said before, Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter. None of it matters. One thing matters, union with Christ by faith. That's it. When Paul says counts for nothing, we got to know what he means by that. I, I, I think what he's talking about is the ability or the capacity for circumcision to gain you any spiritual advantage or blessing. It doesn't. It doesn't gain you anything. 
Circumcision or the law has no capacity to give spiritual life, to give blessing. Verse 6 connects back to to Galatians 3.29. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Being Jewish gains you nothing. Being Gentile gains you nothing. There is only one gain, and that is faith. But notice Paul does not simply say faith. What does he say? He says faith working through love. Now, that is a very intriguing statement. Is Paul now saying that love contributes to justification? Is the equation then really, when it comes down to it, justification equals faith plus love? No. I hope that was your impulse to say, absolutely not, that offends me, to even think yes. No, it doesn't mean that. Don't misunderstand what Paul is saying here. Verse 6 single-handedly destroys the idea of antinomianism. Justification is by faith alone, but not a faith that is alone. Because true justifying faith always works through love for other people. Uh, Faith causes true love. It works in true love. It's inside of true love. Connect verses 5 and 6. In verse 5, the Spirit is working in faith. In verse 6, faith is working through love. Paul's preposition through is important. As we love others, okay, our faith in Christ and our union with Christ are working inside of our love. We trust and we love by the Spirit's power. We could say that true love is energized by true faith, which is energized by the Holy Spirit of God at work in true believers. I think Paul is saying that we prove that we are actually justified when our faith works through practical love for others. Didn't James make a similar point? James 2.18 says, I will show you my faith by my works. We might read Paul and conclude something similar. I will show you my justification by my faith working through my love of others. The late Dr. R.C. Sproul said it well. Quote, Luther said that the sort of faith that justifies is fides viva, a living faith. One that inevitably, necessarily, and immediately yields the fruit of righteousness. Justification is by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. A faith without any yield of righteousness is not true faith. Do you understand? A faith without any yield of righteousness is not true faith. If our faith in Christ does not lead us to truly love others, it is not true faith. The faith of legalists in Galatia was not true faith because instead of loving the church, they troubled the church with the burden of circumcision. That's not loving. Don't do that. That's not helping people. That's putting burden on people. You're not loving. The faith of antinomianism is not true faith either because in an antinomian's pursuit of lawlessness and immorality, they hurt a lot of people along the way. The faith of legalism and antinomianism is a dead faith. True faith is a living faith and a loving faith. We live free by loving others by faith. We live free when our love is saturated with spirit-given and spirit-empowered faith. 
As we trust Christ, he works in us and leads us to love others, and God explains how you and I are to love others in his law, in his law, his word. Henry the Hammer was free, truly free, when he worked with his neighbor, Arthur the Axe, to build that log house. He was free because he was doing what he was created to do. True freedom isn't being and doing whatever you want. True freedom is being and doing whatever God wants. And saints, Christ has set you free. Not to do what pleases your flesh, but to do what pleases your Father. Christ has set us free from the law to live free by standing firm in Christ, anticipating the hope of righteousness and loving others by faith. Let's pray. Father, I beg of you as one of your sons to give your people love for others. And if we are to have an unwavering love for others, our faith in Christ must be unwavering. We will not love unless we trust in Christ. We need your Holy Spirit, God, to give us supernatural love for others. We want to love ourselves and do what we want. And we want to push others out of the way in order to get it. We need your grace to break through. We need your grace to strengthen our faith by the Spirit so that our love can be filled with truth so that we can, by faith, love others selflessly, sacrificially, that we would put their needs above our own, that we would think of others before we think of ourselves. God, I pray that the dear husband and dear wife who are really struggling, God, would, would trust Christ so that their love for one another could be as it should be, that they would obey your law in knowing how to love one another. I pray that the parents who struggle to love their children rightly, uh, God would be so filled with faith and confidence and trust in the gospel and that your spirit would produce a new kind of parenting in them. I pray for our church that we would be so confident in your promises that we would be patient, kind, gentle, giving encouragement along the way, that we would not grow bitter or resentful, but we would be forgiving, quick to forgive, simply because we trust in your promises. That's faith, filling, infused, infusing love. So help us to love by the power of the Spirit, by faith, as we walk. Help us to know why we were created and to live for your glory and to live to enjoy you as we obey you by faith and by the Spirit's power. Strengthen your people to live holy lives so that we can give credit to you to say, look what God has done in these broken and wounded people. Do it for your glory, God. Amen.